412, Chapter 16 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 17 minutes and 44 seconds. Welcome to Craft Lit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 412. Yum. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are having a wonderful week. I am having a week surrounded by the smell of bread. I rediscovered a recipe for gluten-free French bread. And if you are, or if you know somebody who has to avoid gluten, you can go and get that on the show notes at craftlit.com slash 412. Because, oh my gosh, it's easy and it's really good. And it's so nice to have the house smell like like bread again. I really missed it. So that makes me happy, even though it's tax time. But I cannot despair for long because we have a really long chapter today, and it's an important one. And it's certainly one that shows up in the movies, at least in a, a truncated form, if nothing else. So that's kind of fun. But before we get to that, we have some craftiness for you. Okay. First spindle. Oh. Look, even has a TurboTax CD on it. <laughs> like, no, that's the best part. There was still a stash of all the old. Do you remember when you had to like load all the internet stuff? Like literally, people. There was a time when you couldn't access the internet without one of these. Right. <laughs> and people sent them to you all the time, even oh, if you didn't want them. Constantly in the mail. <laughs> yeah. Constantly. I know. We had fodder for like umpteen million CD spindles for quite a while with just a tiny little rubber grommet. That was uh, those AOL CDs are why yeah. I'm married to Andrew. <laughs> I just started sending them to him and saying, hey, there's this internet thing. You should come on and chat with me. He was in New York and I was in L.A. So <laughs> there's this internet thing. Early internet dating. Heather, you're the zeitgeist oh. for everything. <laughs> Hello. Yes, yes, it was it was our density. <laughs> you are my density. We have a couple other uh, pieces of input about homemade spindles. Um, one person says uh, his or her are mostly uh, homemade wooden wheels and dowels from the craft store. Yeah, I've and, seen people do that too. And then also, but the people around there teach kids on spindles made from potatoes or rocks that have holes in them. Ah. A potato spindle, that would be interesting. Yeah. And Crooked Knits has a turtle-made 3D-printed Turkish spindle. Yes, there's a whole dealie on Etsy, 3D-printed spindles all over the place. Whoa. Yeah. Super awesome. So here's another Um, cool spindle that I actually need a bit of advice for. Ooh. Um, We're full of opinions. Yeah, good. Because this one's a mess. So this is a Spanish peacock spindle. I got the very first year he was at Maryland. 
and it's made out of what does it look like? <laughs> Clay. Yeah, yeah, it's made out of polymer, but it is sticky. Wow. So the fiber, I mean, literally, can you see how the fiber sticks to it? Oh, oh that's not I know. So my, I want to know, does anybody know? Can you sand these down? Can you sand this down and finish it with something else that wouldn't be sticky? Because, like, when hmm. it doesn't necessarily feel sticky when I run my hand around it, but if you spin with it, it's just, wow. Yeah, that's definitely the coating on it because I, yeah. I have the polymer clay stuff you know what? I'd just sand it down and get rid of the top layer. And just get rid of the top layer, and do you think the clay will just be fine? Yeah, mine. I mean, as long as you're not going to go out in the rain right. to spindle. We'll try it and report back, see what happens. Um, yeah. Tara, Worcesterweight says you can use water-based wood varnish. Water-based wood varnish. Anyway, it's a really, I like it because it's, you know, it's blue and white, swirly, marbly, and it has a little bit of sparkliness in I it, too. See it. Yeah, and it just has a plain maple shaft. Can you see the hook? It's like a corkscrew. That's the kind I was talking about, The when you bend the the cup hook up yeah. so that it's horizontal. That's what I did to all my homemade ones. Yeah. I love it. So there's that. We'll see if I can get it more functional. And Tammy has seen something at Fiber Shows that sounds really amazing is she's not even a spinner and they were hard to walk away from. Teeny tiny spindles made with a gemstone disc bead and a small stick and they're put together to form a necklace. And she said even as a non-spinner she almost wanted to buy one. <laughs> wow. That means at heart you really are a spinner. <laughs> That's right Tammy. It's only a matter of time. Yeah, that tiny little <laughs> necklace spindle. <laughs> you would find a way to spin with it. <laughs> We have a uh, fleece question. Yeah. How do you card your fleece? You, uh, I'm assuming they're just raw fleeces because you you talked about cleaning it. Uh, the Cormo was a raw fleece, yep. And actually, I've made a, a bunch of bats in my past, too. I have a, a drum carter that has a fine cloth on it. It actually worked super well. Uh, most people told me, don't card the Cormo, you should comb it. And I tried combing it, and it, I wasn't getting what I wanted. I wanted something that was going to be super airy and springy. And it worked beautifully on the drum carter. And then I <clears throat> I pulled it. I don't have any of the balls here. I pulled it out into, I used a diz off of the drum. And I just pulled it off of the drum through the diz, which was actually, it's not even a diz. It's a bead. <laughs> Let's call it what it is. It's one of those kids, <laughs> those plastic kid, those cheap plastic kids beads <laughs> that you bought in the big tubs to keep your kids entertained. You know? It's oh, not a yes. Kid. It's an old kid's bead. <laughs> what would you say the diameter <clears throat> was? Um, smaller than a dime? Yes, it was smaller than a dime. It was probably half the diameter of a dime. So did you use a tiny oh, little, Henrietta's asking too, did you use a tiny little yeah. hook to hook it through? The, the bead, or did you pull some off and kind of... I just pulled some off and did that thing with your fingers. <laughs> and, yeah, and just stuck it through the bead, you know, and then I pulled straight from the drum, and it turned into beautiful roving. I tried doing that, and I I had a hard time, but I wasn't using Cormo, and yeah. I wonder... Because I, I can't believe that people said to comb it. Comb, yeah, that was... Everybody said I'd have a mess of neps. Well, and I was super careful with how I washed it, and I was super careful with how I fed I fed it really lightly 
into the carter. But yeah, it was a dream to card, and it uh, again, I will bring some of those next week to show you. The the balls of roving are just like little clouds of grayness. I did have one bookie thing I brought for you guys. Ooh, bookie is good. <clears throat> Which is fun. I was cleaning out my bedside book stack because it was threatening to fall over on me. <laughs> and I found this. So it's Studio Yearbook 1, A Year of Created Adventures. Creative Adventures. And it's by a local crafty artist. Her name is Gina Sakelski. And she... She sells online. She does a um, kind of cards, lettering, stamps, that kind of business. But the super, well, I mean, she's just super cool. (laughs) But so she documented basically her year in her studio. But the thing about her is she found Alabama Channon and she entered a contest Um, and she won the contest and she got to go study with, she got to go study with them. Wow. Um, so she makes, can you see the skirt? Yes. Holy cow. Yeah. Whoa. Right? All okay, of so this, and this stuff she does personally for herself. She doesn't sell this stuff. So um, describe that for those, <clears throat> those playing at home. She does all of these gorgeous hand-stitched, hand-pieced, handmade, she does not use a machine, clothing for herself. She basically makes most of her own clothing, and she makes clothing for her family. And it's hand-stitched. Most of it is made out of T-shirt jersey, you know, knit jersey fabric. But she does a lot of pieces that involve her hand. She's transitioned her handwriting fonts that she uses for her business into freeform. She freeforms the letters on the fabric, and she stitches around the letters and then cuts. Like putting out a stencil. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but she's free-forming it all. (laughs) She does use some stencils um, for some other things, but her letters, yeah, she does all of herself. But so this book talks about, um, it just goes through her her year in the studio. So it's like, you know, her her stamp making, which is for her business, and her handcrafting um, clothing for herself. She talks about making, uh, she talks about meals and meal prep, and things like that she talks about. And she has little tutorials in here. You know, she shows how she does some of the needlework. Yeah, it's very, um, it's super inspiring. And she just kind of talks about a lot about her philosophy for making and her philosophy for crafting and how it's just enmeshed in every aspect of her life. And is, kind she of. Still, is that book still available? From her, it is. You might be able to find it. She published it herself, so it's it's well well worth it's well worth the price that she's. I want to say it was twenty. I want to say it was twenty five or thirty dollars. So it's you know for what it is for the size of the book, you might look at it and go, man, it's expensive. But I go through it all the time, and I'm so inspired just by her her attitude and how she just creates the world around her every day. Wow. Yeah, so I highly recommend Studio Yearbook 1. And supposedly she's working on Studio Yearbook 2, but I haven't seen it come out yet. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I want because I want another one yes. now. I love those little uh, things that give you insight into somebody else's life like that. I'm yeah. a junkie for stuff like that. That uh, Alabama Chanin or Chanin, yes. how's it? Uh, Kay yeah. from Mason Dixon has done a lot of that. I know at the last couple of Stitches Expos, 
they had uh, this thing where different designers basically create a wardrobe for a mystery client, and one person does knitted things, one person does felt, one person does sewing, and they've done some beautiful Alabama chain and just gorgeous gorgeousness. I've seen it a lot on um, Facebook because the woman who ended up being the recipient of it is local to me, Nathania Apple, and just some drool-worthy stuff. That's very cool. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yay! I have to say, I have really come to look forward to Tuesdays so that I can see Dawn and Erica and get a chance to chat back and forth with those of you who are able to make it. And certainly, if you're not able to make it, it doesn't mean you can't go look at the video and see more of what we are talking about. And to facilitate that, if you look underneath the YouTube video, there's a little down arrow that you need to click. It'll show you basically show notes for the YouTube video, but the number codes on that page are clickable. So if you want to skip to some particular topic and skip over other stuff, easy enough to do. And it's, you know, it's all new to us and me and you. So if you have suggestions, ideas, things like that, please get a hold of me, heather at craftlit.com or 206-350-1642. Don't forget also that if you are in the mood, you are more than welcome to send audio clips of you talking about your favorite book. You can just tell us why you liked it. You don't have to read quotations from it if you don't want to go dig them up. But knowing what your favorite books are, it's a really fun thing. And you can use the telephone number for that or speakpipe.com slash craftlet or you can just record stuff on your computer and email it to me. Along with books that you love are books that we've done as premium books and they've just been kind of languishing. I hadn't had time to clean up the audio or pull commentary out and repackage them for the shop. And I'm slowly starting to do that. But first, before anything else, because I know I've mentioned it several times on the podcast, just like what happened with Bleak House, Three Men in a Boat, I'm compiling into two separate bundles. Bundle one is now available in the shop. And if you're interested, there is a little sneak peek that you can listen to at craftlet.com. You just go to the main page. In the right-hand side sidebar, you'll see the image for Three Men in a Boat. And if you click on that, it'll play five minutes, maybe, of audio so you get at least a taste for it. And then if you are interested, you can go on over to the shop and get that puppy all for yourself. The first bundle is the first half of the book, and that's done, and we're still working on the second half of the book on the premium feed. If you purchase it in the shop, you will get the first bundle now, and you'll receive the second bundle as soon as it's done. And one of those premium books is The Great Gatsby that we did as a benefits-only selection because we don't have rights to The Great Gatsby. It's still under copyright in the United States. I know it's not in other countries, but in the United States it is. And I, I kind of have to stick with that one. But when I think of Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald, I start to think of Hemingway. And then I think about Paris. And then I think about A Midnight in Paris, the Woody Allen movie where I was first introduced to Tom Hiddleston, although I didn't realize it at the time, I just knew that the guy who played Fitzgerald was awesome. I also love the guy who played Hemingway. And he wound up on, um, what was it, the first season of the American House of Cards, not the British House of Cards. And he doesn't look anything like he did in the movie. But, oh, was he wonderful. 
And that is another wonderful thing that Diane has done for us. Day five of the tour this fall will include a chance to go through the Rue Claire, which is where, if you if you think of kind of a, wow, that looks like Paris to me picture of street, cobblestone street with flower vendors and little shops and markets out front. That's this part. And also the Saint-Germain area. This is where we get to Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein and all of the writers and artists that at least I associate with that particular time in history, the the 20s, where you had a lot of expats who stayed over in uh, Europe after World War I and gravitated towards France. With good reason, there was so much going on in such an incredible hub of learning and thinking. And it's no surprise that when Steve Martin wrote Picasso at the Le Panagile, uh, he has Picasso and Einstein happening to be in the same place at the same time. Because it was that kind of inventive, creative, exciting atmosphere that was swirling around there. And while I can guarantee that Diane does an incredible job of putting together these tours, I can't guarantee that we can go back in time and see Hemingway and Fitzgerald. However, what I can guarantee is that the people who will be with us on the tour, we will create our own swirling vortex of awesome literariness as we walk through some of these amazing places in Paris. And talking about fabulous literary people and characters and locations, why, that must mean it's time for the book talk. For today's chapter, like I said, it's a fairly long one, so I wanted to cut to the chase. I have some audio to play from Sarah. I spoke with her last week after I had recorded And she mentioned something kind of interesting about the prison inspector. And I thought I would play that for you because I I found it fascinating. So here is a clip from Sarah. It is a very painful scene. And um, the inspector is an interesting character too, because obviously he's, he's full of pity. He feels pity for Dantes, but he cannot do anything because he understands that the, the whole Law, the whole system is against the rights of the of the prisoner, and prison is only there to help the government to have more power, not for the right of the people to uh, enforce the power of the state. And this um, that character of the inspector is uh, interesting for another reason. It is that he resembles, though it is not. The character is not really inspired by, but he resembles a type of uh, people that were very, very popular in Dumas' time, which were the the philanthropists. The first really well-known philanthropist was an Englishman called John Howard, who started uh, visiting prisons at the end of the 18th century in several countries and in England. And so he would visit the the prisons, ask the prisoners how their conditions of living were, and then report to the parliament in order to obtain better food, better lodging, better treatment for the prisoners. So he he wrote a book which was translated and read in France and uh, 
in, in other countries. And then there was a French uh, philanthropist, which is uh, named in a further chapter. It's just a quick reference, but his name was Benjamin Appert. And it's a very interesting, very interesting man, actually, because so he, he was, he dedicated his whole life to visiting prisons and helping prisoners to get better conditions of living. And he was friends with all the writers from the Romantic era. And Dumas was his secretary for a few months or maybe one or two years um, in 1830s. In 1830, he was friends with Balzac. Um, he was friends with uh, many writers, and many French writers put him as a character in their novels. For example, Stendhal in The Red and the Black. If you read this novel, uh, at the beginning of the book, there is a, a prison mentioned, and Monsieur Appert is a, a character of the book. So, of course, this in inspector, even though he's not a philanthropist, we don't see him advocating for better treatment of the prisoners. He has pity and he, he does what he promises to, to Dantes. Dantes asks him to read the register and see if there is a reason for his uh, being sent to in, incarceration. Thank you. And, uh, and he, he does it. It doesn't help much. No, because Villefort is by nature the man of the prison. Did you notice his name, Villefort? It means strong city, which is actually one of the terms you can use to describe a fortress, a fortified city. A ville, ville is city, and fort means fortified, strong and fortified. So his, his name itself makes him a kind of um, symbol of prison. So he's stronger than any pity and even any reason or rational thinking. So I didn't know any of that. And it has to have come up somewhere in the reading that we've done for Craftlet at some point, because it just seems to be, there are too many places where it must have overlapped. So now I'm kind of curious to go back and reread some of these books and say, see if I can find mention of this guy, these people. Really interesting and important that we touch on the Romantics because Dumas is often associated with the Romantics, but he has created a character that we will get to know today. At least we will begin to get to know him today. And I have a lot more audio to play for you about him. But as we move into the chapter, just kind of keep in mind that this type of man, the Abbe, who we are about to get to know, he is a type, not a, a strict type, the way that you would get in uh, Commedia dell'arte or anything like that. But he was a, a recognizable type of character, an older man, a wise man. He is Obi-Wan Kenobi. He is Yoda. He is, well, he is quite literally the linchpin of the entire story. And, and so he's not someone to let your eyes glaze over while you are listening to him. And he talks at length, about so many different things over the next several chapters, one of the things that he kind of rolls right over today is a lot of history. So just to make sure that you have kind of 
everything in mind as you move into it. Real quickly, after Queen Elizabeth in England, you had James I, then his son Charles I, who was pretty stinky as a king and ran, ran off, got caught, got pokered and beheaded. And then that moved everything into a period where England was being ruled by what was called a rump parliament. And that went from 1649 to 1653, at which point Oliver Cromwell staged coup and he started the the Commonwealth, as we tend to think of it. I, not having grown up taking this specific British history in school, I just kind of always thought that it went straight into Cromwell and his Commonwealth, but it didn't. When he died, he left his place to his son, Richard, who was not strong enough to hold on to it. And he was removed more peacefully than Charles I. Uh, he lived to a ripe old age of, I think, 85. But Charles II came after him, then James II. And then you get Mary and William of Orange coming over from the Netherlands to take the leadership of the country. These names are going to get thrown around very quickly. And three other names are going to be tossed around as well. Caesar Borgia, who you might remember from uh, Italian history from Machiavelli's The Prince. Caesar Borgia is the prince that Machiavelli studied. He stayed with and studied this Borgia guy. And this was where he kind of got his thesis that if you want to have power and maintain power, it's best to earn that spot as prince, as king, as ruler on your own, rather than have it given to you. And that isn't the only thing that his book was talking about, but that's kind of an important part of it. For our purposes today, the thing to remember is that he was only as strong as the person who gave him that position. And that's, that's kind of the direction that the name-dropping takes in this case. There are also two popes that are mentioned, Alexander and Clement. And I think it's Clement II and Alexander VI. And they were both popes in 1400s who, among many other things, had tried to reunify Italy. You remember, this is a thing that we've been hearing about a lot in the last six months, whether it is Pirandello and six characters in search of an author, or the Bourbon, the House of Bourbon. Italy had been broken up into the city-states, and it was hard to feel like a, a unified place, like a unified people. And the Italian history, the history of the Italian peninsula is long and rich with story, and it would be really weird not to be part of that whole. So you can totally understand why that would matter. And you'll understand more about why that matters after you've listened to today's chapter. And that is it. I will catch you on the flip side. Enjoy chapter 16 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas, read for us by David Clark. Chapter 16. A Learned Italian. Seizing in his arms the friend so long and ardently desired, Dante almost carried him towards the window in order to obtain a better view of his features by the aid of the imperfect light that struggled through the grating. He was a man of small stature, 
with hair blanched rather by suffering and sorrow than by age. He had a deep-set, penetrating eye almost buried beneath the thick grey eyebrow, and a long and still black beard reaching down to his breast. His thin face, deeply furrowed by care, and the bold outline of his strongly marked features, betokened a man more accustomed to exercise his mental faculties than his physical strength. Large drops of perspiration were now standing on his brow, while the garments that hung about him were so ragged that one could only guess at the pattern upon which they had originally been fashioned. The stranger might have numbered sixty or sixty-five years, but a certain briskness and appearance of vigour in his movements made it probable that he was aged more from captivity than the course of time. He received the enthusiastic greeting of his young acquaintance with evident pleasure, as though his chilled affections were rekindled and invigorated by his contact with one so warm and ardent. He thanked him with grateful cordiality for his kindly welcome, although he must at that moment have been suffering bitterly to find another dungeon, where he had fondly reckoned on discovering a means of regaining his liberty. "'Let us first see,' said he, "'whether it is possible to remove the traces of my entrance here.' Our future tranquillity depends upon our jailers being entirely ignorant of it. Advancing to the opening, he stooped and raised the stone easily, in spite of its weight. Then, fitting it into its place, he said, You removed this stone very carelessly, but I suppose you had no tools to aid you. Why? exclaimed Dante with astonishment. Do you possess any? I made myself some. And with the exception of a file, I have all that unnecessary, a chisel, pincers, and a lever. Oh, how I should like to see those products of your industry and patience. Well, in the first place, here is my chisel. So saying, he displayed a sharp, strong blade with a handle made of beechwood. And with what did you contrive to make that? inquired Dante. "'with one of the clamps of my bedstead, "'and this very tool has sufficed me to hollow out the road "'by which I came hither, a distance of about fifty feet.' Fifty feet,' responded Dante, almost terrified. "'Do not speak so loud, young man. "'Don't speak so loud. "'It frequently occurs in a state prison like this "'that persons are stationed outside of the doors of the cells.' purposely to overhear the conversation of the prisoners. But they believe I am shut up alone here. That makes no difference. And you say that you dug your way a distance of fifty feet to get here? I do. That is about the distance that separates your chamber from mine. Only, unfortunately, I did not curve right, for want of the necessary geometrical instruments to calculate my scale of proportion. Instead of taking an ellipsis of forty feet, I made it fifty. I expected, as I told you, to reach the outer wall, pierce through it, and to throw myself into the sea. I have, however, kept along the corridor in which your chamber opens, instead of going beneath it. My labour is all in vain, for I find that the corridor looks into a courtyard filled with soldiers.' That's true, said Dante, but the corridor you speak of only bounds one side of my cell. There are three others. 
Do you know anything of their situation? This one is built against the solid rock, and it would take ten experienced miners, duly furnished with the requisite tools, as many years to perforate it. This adjoins the lower part of the governor's apartments, and where we to work our way through, we should only get into some lock-up cellars, where we must necessarily be recaptured. The fourth and last side of your cell faces on, faces on, stop a minute, now where does it face? The wall of which he spoke was the one in which was fixed the loophole by which light was admitted to the chamber. This loophole, which gradually diminished in size as it approached the outside, to an opening through which a child could not have passed, was, for better security, furnished with three iron bars, so as to quiet all apprehensions, even in the mind of the most suspicious jailer, as to the possibility of a prisoner's escape. As the stranger asked the question, he dragged the table beneath the window. "'Climb up,' said he to Dante. The young man obeyed, mounted on the table, and, divining the wishes of his companion, placed his back securely against the wall and held out both hands. The stranger, whom as yet Dante knew only by the number of his cell, sprang up with an agility by no means to be expected in a person of his years, and, light and steady on his feet, as a cat or a lizard, climbed from the table to the outstretched hands of Dante, and from them to his shoulders. Then, bending double, for the ceiling of the dungeon prevented him from holding himself erect, he managed to slip his head between the upper bars of the window, so as to be able to command a perfect view from top to bottom. An instant afterwards he hastily drew back his head, saying, I thought so, and sliding from the shoulders of Dante, as dexterously as he had descended, he nimbly leapt from the table to the ground. What was it that you thought? asked the young man anxiously, in his turn descending from the table. The elder prisoner pondered the matter. Yes, said he at length, it is so. This side of your chamber looks out upon a kind of open gallery, where patrols are continually passing, and sentries keep watch day and night. Are you quite sure of that? Certain. I saw the soldier's shape, and the top of his musket. That made me draw in my head so quickly, for I was fearful he might also see me. Well, inquired Dante, you perceive, then, the utter impossibility of escaping through your dungeon. Then, pursued the young man eagerly, then, answered the elder prisoner, the will of a god be done. And as the old man slowly pronounced those words, an air of profound resignation spread itself over his careworn countenance. Dante gazed on the man who could thus philosophically resign hopes so long and ardently nourished, with an astonishment mingled with admiration. Tell me, I entreat you, who and what you are, said he at length. Never have I met with so remarkable a person as yourself. Willingly, answered the stranger, if indeed you feel any curiosity respecting one, now, alas, powerless to aid you in any way. Say not so. You can console and support me by the strength of your own powerful mind. Pray, let me know who you really are. 
The stranger smiled a melancholy smile. Then listen, said he. I am the Abbe Faria, and have been imprisoned, as you know, in this Chateau d'If since the year 1811, previously to which I had been confined for three years in the fortress of Fenestrel. In the year 1811 I was transferred to Piedmont in France. It was at this period I learned that the destiny which seemed subservient to every wish formed by Napoleon had bestowed on him a son, named King of Rome even in his cradle. I was very far then from expecting the change you have just informed me of, namely that four years afterwards this colossus of power would be overthrown. Then who reigns in France at this moment? Napoleon II? No, Louis XVIII. The brother of Louis XVII? How inscrutable are the ways of providence! For what great and mysterious purpose has it pleased heaven to abase the man once so elevated and raise up him who was so abased? Dante's whole attention was riveted on a man who could thus forget his own misfortunes while occupying himself with the destinies of others. Yes, yes, continued he, it will be the same as it was in England, after Charles I, Cromwell, after Cromwell, Charles II, and then James II, and then some son-in-law or relation, some prince of Orange, a stadtholder who becomes a king, then new concessions to the people, then a constitution, then liberty. Ah, my friend, said the abbe, turning towards Dante and surveying him with the kindling gaze of a prophet, you are young, you will see all this come to pass. Probably, if ever I get out of prison. True, replied Faria, we are prisoners, but I forget this sometimes, and there are even moments when my mental vision transports me beyond these walls and I fancy myself at liberty. But wherefore are you here? Because, in 1807, I dreamed of the very plan Napoleon tried to realize in 1811. Because, like Machiavelli, I desired to alter the political face of Italy, and instead of allowing it to be split up into a quantity of petty principalities, each held by some weak or tyrannical ruler, I sought to form one large, compact and powerful empire, and lastly, because I fancied I had found my Caesar Borgia in a crowned simpleton who feigned to enter into my views only to betray me. It was the plan of Alexander VI and Clement VII, but it will never succeed now, for they attempted it fruitlessly, and Napoleon was unable to complete his work. Italy seems fated to misfortune. And the old man bowed his head. Dante could not understand a man risking his life for such matters. Napoleon certainly he knew something of, inasmuch as he had seen and spoken with him. But of Clement VII and Alexander VI he knew nothing. Are you not, he asked, the priest who here in Chateau d'If is generally thought to be ill? Mad, you mean, don't you? I did not like to say so, answered Dante, smiling. Well, then, resumed Faria with a bitter smile, let me answer your question in full. 
by acknowledging that I am the poor mad prisoner of the Chateau d'If, for many years permitted to amuse the different visitors with what is said to be my insanity, and in all probability I should be promoted to the honour of making sport for the children, if such innocent beings could be found in an abode devoted like this to suffering and despair. Dante remained for a short time mute and motionless. At length he said, Then you abandon all hope of escape? I perceive its utter impossibility, and I consider it impious to attempt that which the Almighty evidently does not approve. Nay, but do not be discouraged. Would it not be expecting too much to hope to succeed at your first attempt? Why not try to find an opening in another direction from that which has so unfortunately failed? Alas, it shows how little notion you can have of all it has cost me to effect a purpose so unexpectedly frustrated that you talk of beginning over again. In the first place, I was four years making the tools I possess, and have been two years scraping and digging out earth hard as granite itself. Then what toil and fatigue has it not been to remove huge stones I should once have deemed impossible to loosen. Whole days have I passed in these titanic efforts, considering my labour well repaid, if by night-time I had contrived to carry away a square inch of this hard-bound cement, changed by ages into a substance unyielding as the stones themselves, then to conceal the mass of earth and rubbish I dug up, I was compelled to break through a staircase and throw the fruits of my labour into the hollow part of it. But the well is now so completely choked up that I scarcely think it would be possible to add another handful of dust without leading to discovery. Consider also that I fully believed I had accomplished the end aim of my undertaking, for which I had so exactly husbanded my strength as to make it just hold out to the termination of my enterprise. And now, at the moment when I reckoned upon success, my hopes and forever dashed from me. No, I repeat again, that nothing will induce me to renew attempts evidently at variance with the Almighty's pleasure. Dante held down his head, that the other might not see how joy at the thought of having a companion outweighed the sympathy he felt for the failure of the Abbe's plans. The Abbe sank upon Edmond's bed, while Edmund himself remained standing. Escape had never once occurred to him. There are indeed some things which appear so impossible that the mind does not dwell on them for an instant. To undermine the ground for fifty feet, to devote three years to a labour which, if successful, would conduct you to a precipice overhanging the sea, to plunge into the waves from the height of fifty, sixty, perhaps a hundred feet, at the risk of being dashed to pieces against the rocks, should you have been fortunate enough to have escaped the fire of the sentinels, and even, supposing all these perils past, then to have to swim for your life a distance of at least three miles ere you could reach the shore, were difficulties so startling and formidable that Dante had never even dreamed of such a scheme, resigning himself rather to death. 
but the sight of an old man clinging to life with so desperate a courage gave a fresh turn to his ideas and inspired him with new courage. Another, older and less strong than he, had attempted what he had not had sufficient resolution to undertake and had failed only because of an error in calculation. This same person, with almost incredible patience and perseverance, had contrived to provide himself with tools requisite for so unparalleled an attempt. Another had done all this. Why, then, was it impossible to Dante? Faria had dug his way through fifty feet. Dante would dig a hundred. Faria, at the age of fifty, had devoted three years to the task. He, who was but half as old, would sacrifice six. Faria, a priest and savant, had not shrunk from the idea of risking his life by trying to swim a distance of three miles to one of the islands, Dôme, Ratonneau, or Lumère, should a hardy sailor, an experienced diver like himself, shrink from a similar task? Should he, who had so often, for mere amusement's sake, plunged to the bottom of the sea to fetch up the bright coral branch, hesitate to entertain the same project? He could do it in an hour. And how many times had he, for pure pastime, continued in the water for more than twice as long? At once, Dante resolved to follow the brave example of his energetic companion, and to remember that what has once been done may be done again. After continuing some time in profound meditation, the young man suddenly exclaimed, I have found what you are in search of. Faria started. Have you indeed? cried he, raising his head with quick anxiety. Pray, let me know what it is you have discovered. The corridor through which you have bored your way from the cell you occupy here, extends in the same direction as the outer gallery, does it not? It does, and is not above fifteen feet from it. About that. Well, then, I will tell you what we must do. We must pierce through the corridor by forming a side opening about the middle, as it were the top part of a cross. This time you will lay your plans more accurately. We shall get out into the gallery you have described, kill the sentinel who guards it, and make our escape. All we require to ensure good success is courage, and that you possess, and strength which I am not deficient in. As for patience, you have abundantly proved yours. You shall now see me prove mine. One instant, my dear friend, replied the abbe, it is clear you do not understand the nature of the courage with which I am endowed, and what use I intend making of my strength. As for patience, I consider that I have abundantly exercised that in beginning every morning the task of the night before, and every night renewing the task of the day. But then a young man, and I pray of you to give me your full attention, then I thought I could not be doing anything displeasing to the Almighty in trying to set an innocent being at liberty, one who had committed no offence and merited not condemnation. And have your notions changed? asked Dante with much surprise. Do you think yourself more guilty in making the attempt since you have encountered me? No, neither do I wish to incur guilt. Hitherto I have fancied myself merely waging war against circumstances, not men. 
I have thought it no sin to bore through a wall or destroy a staircase, but I cannot so easily persuade myself to pierce a heart or take away a life. A slight movement of surprise escaped Dante. Is it possible, said he, that where your liberty is at stake, you can allow any such scruple to deter you from obtaining it? Tell me, replied Faria, what has hindered you from knocking down your jailer with a piece of wood torn from your bedstead, dressing yourself in his clothes, and endeavouring to escape? Simply the fact that the idea never occurred to me, answered Dante. Because, said the old man, the natural repugnance to the commission of such a crime prevented you from thinking of it. And so it ever is, because in simple and allowable things our natural instincts keep us from deviating from the strict line of duty. The tiger, whose nature teaches him to delight in shedding blood, needs but the sense of smell to show him when his prey is within his reach, and by following this instinct he is enabled to measure the leap necessary to permit him to spring on his victim. But man, on the contrary, loathes the idea of blood. It is not alone that the laws of social life inspire him with a shrinking dread of taking life, his natural construction and physiological formation. Dante was confused and silent at this explanation of the thoughts which had unconsciously been working in his mind, or rather soul, for there are two distinct sorts of ideas, those that proceed from the head and those that emanate from the heart. Since am I imprisonment, said Faria, I have thought over all the most celebrated cases of escape on record. They have rarely been a successful. Those that have been crowned with full success have been long meditated upon and carefully arranged, such, for instance, as the escape of the Duke de Beaufort from the Chateau de Vincennes, that of the Abbe de Beauquois from Fort Levesque, of Latude from the Bastille, then there are those for which chance sometimes affords opportunity, and those are the best of all. Let us therefore wait patiently for some favourable moment, and when it presents itself, profit by it. Ah, said Dante, you might well endure the tedious delay. You were constantly employed in the task you set yourself, and when weary with toil, you had your hopes to refresh and encourage you. I assure you, replied the old man, I did not turn to that source for recreation or support. What did you do then? I wrote or studied. Were you then permitted the use of pens, ink and paper? Oh, no, answered the abbe. I had none but what I made for myself. You made paper, pens and ink? Yes, Dante gazed with admiration, but he had some difficulty in believing. Faria saw this. When you pay me a visit in my cell, my young friend, said he, I will show you an entire work, the fruits of the thoughts and the reflections of my whole life. Many of them meditated over in the shades of the Colosseum at Rome, at the foot of St. Mark's Column at Venice, and on the borders of the Arno at Florence little imagining at the time that they would be arranged in order within the walls of the Chateau d'If. 
The work I speak of is called A Treatise on the Possibility of a General Monarchy in Italy, and will make one large quarto volume. And on what have you written all this? On two of my shirts. I invented a preparation that makes linen as smooth and as easy to write on as parchment. You are then a chemist? Somewhat. I know Lavoisier and was the intimate friend of Cabani. But for such a work you must have needed books. Had you any? I had nearly five thousand volumes in my library at Rome. But after reading them over many times, I found out that with one hundred and fifty well-chosen books, a man possesses, if not a complete summary of all human knowledge, at least all that a man need really know. I devoted three years of my life to reading and studying these one hundred and fifty volumes, till I knew them nearly by heart, so that since I have been in prison, a very slight effort of memory has enabled me to recall their contents as readily as though the pages were open before me. I could recite you the whole of Thucydides, Xenophon, Plutarch, Titus, Livius, Tacitus, Strada, Jonandes, Dante, Montaigne, Shakespeare, Spinoza, Machiavelli, and Bousset. I name only the most important. You are doubtless acquainted with a variety of languages, so as to have been able to read all these. Yes, I speak five of the modern tongues, that is to say, German, French, Italian, English, and Spanish. By the aid of ancient Greek, I learned modern Greek. I don't speak it so well as I could wish, but I am still trying to improve myself. Improve yourself, repeated Dante. Why, how can you manage to do so? Why, I made a vocabulary of the words I knew, turned, returned, and arranged them, so as to enable me to express my thoughts through their medium. I know nearly one thousand words, which is all that is absolutely necessary, although I believe there are nearly one hundred thousand in the dictionaries. I cannot hope to be very fluent, but I certainly should have no difficulty in explaining my wants and wishes, and that would be quite as much as I should ever require." Stronger grew the wonder of Dante, who almost fancied it had to do with one gifted with supernatural powers, still hoping to find some imperfection which might bring him down to a level with human beings. He added, Then, if you were not furnished with pens, how did you manage to write the word you speak of? I made some excellent ones, which would be universally preferred to all others if once known. You are aware what huge whitings are served us on maigre days. Well, I selected the cartilages of the heads of these fishes, and you can scarcely imagine the delight with which I welcomed the arrival of each Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, as affording me the means of increasing my stock of pens. For I will freely confess that my historical labours have been my greatest solace and relief. While retracing the past, I forgot the present, and traversing at will the path of history, I cease to remember that I am myself a prisoner. But the ink, said Dante, of what did you make your ink? There was formerly a fireplace in my dungeon, replied Faria, but it was closed up long ere I became an occupant of this prison. 
Still, it must have been many years in use, for it was thickly covered with a coating of soot. This soot I dissolved in a portion of the wine brought to me every Sunday, and I assure you, a better ink cannot be desired, for very important notes for which closer attention is required, I prayed to one of my fingers, and wrote with my own blood. And when? asked Dante. May I see all this? Whenever you please, replied the abbe. Oh, then let it meet directly, exclaimed the young man. Follow me, then, said the abbe, as he re-entered the subterranean passage, in which he soon disappeared, followed by Dante. End of chapter 16 And next week, we get to see the Abbe's cell. <laughs> Fun stuff. The Abbe mentioned two people specifically who had escaped from prison. And I wanted to let you know that they're real. I'm going to read to you from notes in my book. Dumas used the escape of the Duc de Beaufort from Vincennes in his, and this happened in 1643, in his novel, Twenty Years After, Abbe Dubuquois escaped from the Bastille after being imprisoned in 1706, and Jean-Henri Latude twice escaped from the prison at Vincent after being arrested in 1749 for, get this, sending a box of powder to Madame de Pompadour, which made me think, wow, either that was just very affronting to have somebody you don't know send you a box of powder, or it was really lousy powder. <laughs> really, really lousy powder. But when he escaped, he was recaptured and spent a total of 35 years in prison for powder. On his release, he wrote his memoirs, and that is what made him famous. So those were real prison escapes that the Abbe refers to. And I think everything else pretty much made sense, right? There weren't any big surprises I remembered, or nothing that I wrote down anyway. Feel free to send in your comments to 206-350-1642 or speakpipe.com slash craftlit. Let us know what you think. Also, don't forget, if you have a favorite book, something that really rocked your world and floated your boat when you were a kid, or a teen, or a 20-something, or a 30-something, feel free to share that information with everybody else. I know last time when I put all the links to all of the books that were mentioned, uh, lots of people wound up clicking on those links because they're pretty awesome. So please, please, please do feel free to share your insight and recommendations with everyone. Last thing I wanted to do is thank the new Patreon patrons. These are people who pledged for the first time in March. And they are VB, Lindy, Kristen, Alicia, and Kitty. Thank you so much for your support. And I've gotten a couple of questions lately about which is, and I'm using air quotes here, better, the app or Patreon as far as supporting the show. And the answer is, how do you like listening to the show? Because if you like streaming... Or having the ability to mark an episode for download now, listen later, so that you don't have to stream, then the app is definitely the way to go. And if you subscribe through the app for the premium feed, that is supporting the show. 
Patreon, you have a little bit more flexibility. They do have an app you can listen. It's just not quite as advanced an app as the dedicated Craftlit app is. And I know sometimes the Craftlit app gets all wonky and you wind up having to reinstall it, but it is just for us. So you don't have to have an extra app on your device, which is nice. I'm also testing out a new help you decide thing on the show notes this week. You'll see some purple buttons that asks you questions. Go ahead and click on those and see, first off, see if you can break it. Because I tried several different ways and I gave it to my sons and had them try and break it. So far I haven't. But if you manage to, let me know because I want to fix it. But it's kind of like a choose your own adventure that helps you find the best way for you to listen to the show. And I kind of felt like I had to do it because it's gotten complicated. We have so many different ways to listen. And those aren't things that I'm making up just because I want to make more work for myself. It's because we have people who are listening these different ways and they've requested stuff. So there are options that you may not even know about. And that's kind of cool. So this this little questionnaire, which should take about 30 seconds, if that will help you find your way around. So especially if you're new, that might be something to check out at craftlit.com slash 412. And I think that's it. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Enjoy. And don't forget to swing by and listen to the sneak peek of Three Men in a Boat. It's such a hoot. I love this thing. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 